one word change your life and why are people so terrified of public speaking today i'm delighted to have my friend richard green on the david suisa podcast now richard has been called by a director at nbc news the best idea guy in america he's a former attorney that that has written the author of words that shook the world a highlight of his 30-year campaign to help Americans redefine their greatest fear, which is public speaking. Richard, welcome to my podcast. Such a pleasure. So great to see you again. I've known you for so long. And, you know, we, we lost touch with each other, and your name came up, and I said, he's got to come on the show. And I said yes immediately. And I love having conversations with people who love words, who, I mean, you were in advertising, obviously, that's very largely about words, and who have a really fascinating view of the world, as you do. And I really do love words, and I'm also sometimes in awe of words. Uh, I realize their power, their power to, to, to create and to destroy. So let's go into public speaking before we get into words. Explain to me why it's people are so terrified of getting up and speaking in public. Yeah, it's fascinating. It is the single largest fear cross-culturally around the world. 41% of adults say that they are afraid of public speaking. That is a higher number than the number of people who are afraid of death. So there was a Seinfeld episode where they were joking that at a funeral, people would rather actually be in the box rather than standing up and giving the eulogy. And I believe that the reason is actually very deep and very primal. And that is, if you think about human beings, what makes us different than every other animal? Some animals, you see videos on Nat Geo or the Animal Channel or, or Discovery, whatever, and they're born and within, you know, they shake themselves off and they're up and they're running and they're eating and they're all of that within, within seconds or minutes, right? That's not human beings. We cannot survive on our own for 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, I don't know, my daughter's 32, she still needs my help. Um, we are dependent on our parents, on people who love us and our community, literally for our survival for incredibly long periods of time, seriously. I mean, before like eight or nine or 10 or 11 or 12, you drop a kid, anywhere by themselves without the support of their community and they will very likely die. Certainly they would have years ago. Maybe now they'd find somehow support. So we depend on each other. So, so how is that relevant? So when you have a 40-year-old or 50-year-old CEO of a Fortune 500 company who needs beta blockers in order to give a speech, and so many people do, it's not because on a rational level he thinks he's going to die if he does not do well in his speech. But we all have experiences when we're young where we were asked to stand up and talk about our, our summer vacation or describe something, and we were nervous and maybe you know, our fly was open or we, or we had zits on our face when we were young or we stumbled or we stuttered or whatever. And we had this experience of being rejected or a fear of being rejected by our support community. Which our goes back to the fear you mentioned earlier, the fact that we can't survive alone. Exactly. If we lose the support of our support community when we are young, we die. 
So by being in public shame, the fear of being ashamed in public, if I screw up in front of these 300 people, I will be shamed, and this shame connects to feeling isolated. And they will then ostracize me. They will not love me. They will not support me, and I will die. And it, So the, right. the, the reason people freak out is a deep, deep, deep ancestral primal fear literally of dying. So it's completely not rational, but it's part of who we are as human beings because we are so vulnerable and vulnerable and dependent for so many years. And public speaking is our biggest opportunity to be rejected by the people we need to love us in order to stay alive. And it's stark and it's naked and there's no editing room. You're not going to go back and edit this thing. This is in real time. It's live. You're seeing those 300 people and it's horror. And, and I think that might be one of the reasons people read speeches a lot instead of doing public speaking. They, they sort of, you know, settle for the comfort of just reading something and it rarely right. goes Right, so you win well. the battle but you lose the war. That's well said. So Richard. the battle is, okay, I'm not going to die, I'm not going to be completely embarrassed, but you disengage from the audience, they're looking on their iPhones, you're not really getting your message across. And even though you don't embarrass yourself, you kind of suck. You know, this could be why the people who are really good at public speaking, why they're so valued, because people inherently feel how difficult it is, and it could be why they stand out and why they're so effective. Listen, you know, our culture as Americans has been, and, and as human beings, has been shaped by the people who were good at public speaking. I mean, what would the world be without, you know, Adolf Hitler on the bad end? What would it be without... Uh, Abraham Winston, Lincoln, Winston Churchill, or man. Abraham Lincoln, or Franklin Roosevelt, mm. or John F. Kennedy, or Martin Luther King, right? I mean, it is a rare thing to find someone who is that great. I just was in Newtown, Connecticut, and I had a picture taken with Martin Luther King III and Dr. King's granddaughter, Yolanda, who spoke at the March for Our Lives rally back in, in, in Washington, D.C. It was such an honor. I mean, what an incredible gift. So the, the, I've dedicated my career over the last 30 years to transcending what I just described. Right. right? And you know what I, what I find fascinating, Richard, is that for people who love public speaking, it's the exact opposite of the horror that you describe. In the same way that this is – that I'm petrified. I am feeding off the energy of the crowd. This is my life. I can't wait to get up there. And it's the opposite. It's like black and white. Instead of being petrified, I'm nourished by this crowd and I'm loving this. So ask me whether I'd prefer to spend a week in the most beautiful place I've ever been, the Maldives, right? You get an all expense paid week in the Maldives or Richard Green, you get to stand up and speak for five hours to 75,000 people in the, at the Rose Bowl? Ask yeah. me that question. Which one would I prefer? Oh, the, the Maldives, of course. No, no, no the, the Rose Bowl. The Rose Bowl, or right. even for five minutes. Because what great public speakers or people who love public speaking understand is the following. Let me explain it this way. So you and I at a Shabbat dinner, we can have this incredible conversation about life after death or, or politics or whatever, and we, we get lost in that moment, and it's exhilarating, right? We both leave the dinner table kind of elevated because we've had this exchange mm -hmm. of energy where I've poured my enthusiasm into you. As you've long as we don't talk about Trump, you mean. Who? Right. <laughs> Who who's that? We're, no, we're, Excellent this answer. Is, <laughs> we're going to try. We're going to try yeah. to have a podcast without talking about that man. 
Um, although we can if you want, because I have some thoughts, as we all do. Back but, to the Shabbat this, table. Yeah, but this is more important. So have you had that experience? where, Or you're having oh, yeah. lunch with someone or dinner or just a conversation with someone on an airplane, and you feel elevated mm-hmm. by the exchange of words and energy and communication. Yes? Mm, all the time. All the time. So now that's you pouring out one unit of David Suiza energy having it then reflected back with an addition of one unit of Richard Green energy, mm-hmm. right? So you're putting out one, you're getting one back. Like we're doing now. Like we're doing now, right? And it's all about energy. So now multiply that times 100 or times 1,000. So I'm going to go to a Tony Robbins event later today. He's a dear friend. I used to be his lawyer. That's kind of mm-hmm. where I learned a lot about public speaking because he is a master. And so you pour out one unit of Tony Robbins energy or David Suisse energy, and you have 5,000 people. If you have them engaged, if not, it's a horrible experience and you're up there all by yourself. But one unit of David Suisse energy and what comes back at you is 5,000 times that. You it's know, exhilarating. A, it's, like, yeah. it's, like, it's like the best drug trip ever. I, I totally get the drug trip because I got to the point where I really am nourished by a big crowd. But I got to tell you, I was traumatized because – I don't know. I made a big mistake when I was 9 or 10 years old. I got up and sang a really stupid song at Bene Brith. I think it was a song in French, and nobody understood. It was so embarrassing. Let's, let's and, hear it now. Give, let's have a chance for you to redo that and, no and, and, and overlay a positive memory with a, over a negative one. Oh, you know what? I actually remember the song, and you, you have to pay me a lot of money to sing it. But it, literally, it's like being bitten by a dog when you're young, and I was bitten by that horror. And for years and years, so I became like a backstage guy. So I would like, a, you know, always backstage. So I would produce. I'd get other speakers to speak. I'd get a rabbi to speak. I, I started a magazine, and I loved my zone, you know, like the behind-the-scenes guy. But that's not really who you are. It, it wasn't really that who was I was. That was a subset of who you are. And then I heard an are. interesting insight because I had stuff to share, and every time they would ask me to speak, I said, no, 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 I like behind the scenes. And then somebody, so Rabbi, I forget who he was, he said, you're obsessed with your personality. You're like a, a slave to your personality. You're like the, you're the behind the stage guy, and that's who you want. You follow yourself. If you have something to share, stop thinking about yourself and share it. It was a really good insight. Oh, my God, I love this Rabbi. He, who is it? I'll see if I can remember it. I think it might have been Manis Friedman. But, but, but the idea was stop being so obsessed with yourself. And if you have something to share, just think of the mitzvah. And that's what got me out of the horror of my child experience at Pnei Brit. I started speaking. And I, re- I was thinking more of the mitzvah of sharing an interesting insight with the group. Uh, hallelujah. That is perfect. So here, can I give you the, the new definition of public speaking? Because it relates exactly to what you're talking about. And anyone who is listening who has been afraid of public speaking... This will help a lot, right? By the way, when I came in, and what I love to do is redefine things and say, no, 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 this is that's the old paradigm. What would the new paradigm be? And and I was a lawyer for Tony Robbins, and I learned neurolinguistic programming, and I watched Tony Robbins exhibit unbelievable mastery in this thing called public speaking. And so I said, hmm, I have a whole new paradigm, a whole new model that I want to share. When I started teaching public speaking back in the 1980s, the gold standard, the high watermark is you get up there on stage and you look over the heads of the audience or you imagine them what, right? Naked or in their underwear, right? Mm-hmm. That, is, that is like saying you live in Los Angeles, you want to go to Hawaii, go to New York. 
it's 180 degrees away from what you're supposed to do. What great communicators and great speakers do is the opposite of that. Oh, that's so interesting. You do not discount or diminish you the audience. You are freaking there for them. Mm. They are everything, not nothing, mm -hmm. right? Because it's the mitzvah, exactly what you talked about. So I came up with a new definition of public speaking. It's not a performance at an audience where you're the king on stage looking down or over or over the heads or diminishing or discounting the people by imagining them being naked, which is just, it's just it's so disrespectful. In fact, what great public speaking is, three things. One is a conversation, not a performance. It's a conversation. Human beings are literally neurologically programmed to have conversation. You can have a conversation with someone sitting, stranger sitting next to you on a plane for hours and hours and hours. And I got to interject because I'm so glad you said this. I got to tell you, a lot of times, Richard, I'll hear a fantastic speech. And my takeaway is that it was a great speech, but he didn't move me. He or she did not move me. So in a way, they had all the right moves, but I didn't feel it was a conversation. Because the second part of that first part, so great public speaking is nothing more than a conversation as opposed to a performance, from where? From the head or from the heart? Oh, it has to be both, right? Well, mainly yeah. driven by the heart. It's I a see. conversation from the heart, okay. number two, about something that you are authentically passionate about. I work mm -hmm. with you know, Goldman Sachs, Lockheed Martin, I mean, major corporations uh, all over the world. And so many of their top executives, they get up there and, you know, they do PowerPoints or they do speeches. And it's because they have to say and you what they're feel, saying. And you feel that they have to say what they're saying. But they're you not the authentically passionate about it. You should not speak one word out of your mouth when you're giving a speech or even a PowerPoint presentation that you are not authentically passionate one about. One of my favorite lines, Richard, from the ad business, one of the few things I can remember is, I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's what people take away, right? It's, it's an emotional so the second experience. Point. What's so the third? having a conversation from your heart, number two, about something that you are authentically passionate about. And then the third thing is what you said. It's the mitzvah. Mm -hmm. Why are you up there? If you're trying to sell something, whether it's a product, a service, an idea, you're going to be seen as a salesman. And then people will have their barriers and their shields up, and they're not going to be receptive to you. Mm-hmm. But if they get the experience and if you come from that place where you can't wait to share something because you know it will improve their life. So the third thing is that in order to help that person or that group of people or the whole world, you're there to give something. I tell people, I say, how many of you are afraid of public speaking? They raise their hand. I said, okay, here. Imagine I'm going to give each of you a stack of $100 bills, brand new, crisp $100 bills. And all you need to do, instead of saying anything, is you need to walk around and give a fresh, crisp $100 bill to every single person in the audience. So there's 150 people, 150 $100 bills. How many of you would be nervous about doing that? Of course, people smile, they laugh, they go, of course not. And I say, but that's what you're doing as a speaker. And if what you have to share with your audience is worth less than $100, why are you wasting your time or theirs? You know, I feel a little guilty when I'm hearing you because, you know, for years I used to do public speaking when I would pitch an account in the ad business, right? And I had to, I don't know, feel super passionate about a baby food that I didn't really care about that much. 
in honesty, right? But remember the famous line, sincerity is an amazing thing. If you can fake it, you got it made. And uh, I hate that line. Me too. I hate yeah, that line I never is wanted... a cancer on communication. Yeah, because I really, I really struggled to have some authenticity, even though the product itself was not that big a deal. I mean, who cares if the world sells more Doritos or less Doritos or, or more cars or less cars of this brand, right? I mean, inherently, it was a commercial enterprise. But I had to find some authenticity, some passion. Right. So there's a secret that I use in my teaching and coaching, and that is to ask yourself whether it's about the baby food or the Doritos or whatever it is, what is SFC about that thing that you are talking about? I'll tell you how I... Do you know what SFC is? Go ahead. No, I've made it up. You know what it is? <laughs> what, can you imagine? So freaking cool. Well, right. So what is and you can use whatever version of the F word that you want, but it has to be a visceral response. So you've got to find something that is so freaking cool, SFC, about whatever it is that you're talking about. And I did. And, you and, I, and I, did I will not let that. you just go out there and do a presentation. So you do that. But I'll, I'll tell you what I ended up. The place I ended up to find that deep place of authenticity is the, the, the customer, the client who cared so much about success in his career, in his life. And I found the humanity in the whole experience. So I was in front of three, four people mm. who really, really wanted this product to succeed. And that humanity nourished me. So I'm going to here, I'm going to help you in your career, in your life succeed. That humanity gave me a place of authenticity. Right. And then I would add one more thing. What about this particular brand of baby food or crackers or whatever is unique Right, and that was that was my profession. That's what I right because right. the two things in marketing. Marketing, if you want to sell anything, you answer two questions because purchasers only really have two questions, which is what is unique about this thing that's being presented or sold, and how does that uniqueness benefit me? Now, what what do you respond to people who are just brilliant presenters and they use their brilliance for purposes of manipulation? What do you mean? What do I respond? I, I mean, think there's something called karma. Hmm. You know, I think literally karma is a scientific fact. What goes around, come, what comes around, goes around. What goes around, comes around. And it works both ways. We had that in the ad business. We had people who were so famous for their presentation skills. Yeah. You know, the cliche can sell ice and Eskimo and all that. Right. And that's a little bit of a dangerous thing because, you know, you have a bad idea. You have... Bad, but yet you're such a great presenter. I mean, that's has that played a role in your career? Has that come up? Here, here's what I've Have you come seen up those with. kind of people? Yeah, of course. And which is why I think the number one thing that makes a great communicator. And we had some examples of this in the 2016 presidential election, which is presidential elections are like Super Bowls of communication, mm -hmm. right? Because it's all about communication. You had this old Jewish guy who is a socialist, not even a member Bernie. of the Democratic Party. Feel who, the burn. Who rocked it, who had young people who'd never engaged in the political system going crazy. Why? Because he was authentic. Mm -hmm. He wasn't, quote unquote, a traditional politician. Because traditional politicians are like Hillary. They, they kind of fudge and they, they make up stuff and they're not completely authentic or honest. That feels so true what you're saying. And Donald Trump yeah. won the election for many reasons, but a big part of it was people felt he was authentic. He may not have ultimately been telling the truth, but there was this raw kind of, I'm just going to speak from my heart. I'm not going to be politically correct. I'm just going to be myself. Now, 
so, so you had Trump, who was authentic in kind of his own unique way, um, unrestrained by facts. And then you had Bernie, who was really authentic and had been authentically passionate about and consistent on the same issues for 35 years, which people find remarkable and really reassuring. You can trust someone who's not going to change his mind because a poll comes out one way or another. And then you have Hillary, who was not authentic. She was inauthentic. I told my friends in the Hillary campaign, I said, if you want Hillary to win, we have to see more of the Hillary who broke down in tears in New Hampshire in 2008. Many of you have seen that video talking about how much she loved the country. That was authentic. That was her one deeply, deeply passionate, emotional, authentic moment. And then during the entire 2016 campaign, that person was missing in action. And she lost because of that. Authenticity, authenticity, and here's the thing about it, just like with a salesperson. If a salesperson burns you and is manipulative and disingenuous and inauthentic to you, they will never, ever, ever, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. They will never, ever be 100%. You'll, you'll always have a discount factor when it relates to them. And you know, that's, I uh, tell that to my clients all over the world all the time. You cannot feign emotion. You can't talk about how something is great unless you 100% believe it. So find a way to be authentic with every word that comes out of your you mouth. You know, it's interesting because authenticity itself is a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, uh, Bernie had that feeling of authenticity. He really, really believed mm -hmm. that his ideas were really good and, and there was a way to afford them and all that, right? What I'm looking for, what I'm waiting for, is a politician who's authentic in the way he says, here's what I cannot do. Here's what government cannot do. I love that. I agree with you. And you see, I often tell, my, politi I tell my political clients and business clients exactly that, David. I say, some of the best words I've ever heard in a television interview is, I don't know, for example. Or I or, can't I do can't, it. Or, or the, we can't do this. The government can't do A, B, C, D. The government can't, do, can't raise your kids. And the government can't well, bring you happiness in well, your relationship with your wife and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, it's the nature of the beast. Politicians are there to promise and promise and promise. And we live, we're constantly burned by all this over-promising to the point that they have this huge, enormous impact on our lives. And we expect so right. much from our political leaders. And you create these inflated expectations that just get worse by the election cycle. And when is a politician going to come and bring some reality to the show? Again, comes back to authenticity. I think what Bernie would say in response to that is if we cut the military budget and we raise taxes, we can afford all of those things. Again, he had an answer for that. Whether it was accurate or not, you know, we don't know. Yeah, you know, and it's also interesting how a guy like Trump can be seen as being authentic. In a way, sometimes they can give authenticity a bad name in a way, right? <laughs> like we need some kind of Well, place. my definition of authentic means you don't look in the camera and lie. And right. there was a report gotcha. that said he lies on average six times a day. Wow, well, it's on a good day. Right. So, uh, again. I, I mean, we actually ended up speaking the T word. Hey, Trump, that's... Yeah, I, I know. Look, okay. look, look, look at this. Look at this. Yeah, I, I, we got away people with asked me. I was doing a, a media training. He's the most for divisive a, for figure a in American history. I was doing a media training on Wednesday, a couple of days ago, for a television network here in, in Los Angeles. They said, what kind of TV do you watch? I said, I watch the best soap opera I've ever seen. 
on television all day, every day. CNN, Fox News Channel, MSNBC. All day long, it's, it's on my- It's the best soap opera ever. Why my, do I need my fake, t- re- fake television shows? I've got a real one, and you never yeah. know what's gonna happen the next minute. You know, and the press, they should stop complaining about him because they're making so much money off of him. I got CNN in my office all day long. I know, I saw. It's Trump, you know, like, 24 hours a day. And I like to watch yeah. Fox News Channel because it's like you get a chance to have a completely separate parallel universe all while living in one life. We try to do that. We have this <laughs> thing called the Morning Roundtable. I'll put you on the list. And I think it's the only newsletter that does it where we really give you all the different point of views, left, right, center, all of them on, on all the issues and tell me what you think. Anyhow. I love it. Thank so, you. So public speaking, uh, let's talk about words, Richard. Um, give me examples in your life of how you've seen the, the misuse of words because there, there's something that gives me the goosebumps when I hear about words. You know, you have stories of how one word could have killed a marriage, killed a relationship. One word. And then you get stories of one word could have just changed the dynamic of a conversation. That, I'm in awe of the power of words. And right. we're now in a word, you know, where everybody's texting and, and you know, and... Talk to me about words. I'll give you a great story. Let me tell you a story. Uh, Years and years ago, I was giving a speech at the United Nations in Geneva. And I did a little exercise. And there were 60 people exactly. And I said, I want you all to take out a piece of paper and go write 1 through 10. And I'm going to give you a word. And without looking at your neighbors, I want you to write 10 words that for you are what this word is. What does this word mean to you? What are the synonyms? What are the experiences? What are the 10 words that pop out of your brain when you see this word? Okay? And it was the United Nations. So I figured what's the most important word for the United Nations? It's peace. Mm. Right? So here's peace. Right? So each of the 60 people wrote 10 definitions, their own definitions for the for the word peace. And then I had these these 60 people get in groups of six. So there were 10 tables, each with six people. Got it? And I, and I said, how many words do you think you all will have in common? In other words, consensus reality, what this word peace means. And one would think this is the United Nations. You, you kind of all are on the same page. So how many words on average with these 10 groups do you think that every one of the six people had on their list? No consensus. idea. No idea. <laughs> Your daughter has the answer. Can you say something? Go ahead. Speak. Yeah, the answer is zero. Oh, wow. There were nine of the ten tables that had zero words in common. Wow. In other words, there was not one word that was on each of the six people's list. And then there was one table that had one word that they all agreed on. Want to know what that word was? Which one? It's a beautiful word. Love. Love. I was gonna, just going to say that. Right? But yeah. one table, one word. Right. So, for example, with a P, someone could have like strength and security, whatever, and other people that have a whole different kind of list. So, the, so the bot, what people need to understand is that when you say a word, you are speaking from 30 or 40 or 50 or 70 years of connotations and experiences and associations related to that word. That's why and a word like peace today has hardly any meaning if you look at in the Middle East, right? And a word like God. Can you mm-hmm. imagine a word like God? Or a word like sex. Let's say you the word sex. You have used. Well, the word that's sex. still a great word. No, well, just... it can be, but not if you were raped. 
Not uh, if when you were course, 16 yes. years old or 14 years old, you of have course. been raped. Then sex uh, forever for the rest of your life is going to have a traumatic experience for you and literally bring up chemicals out of your body that are going to shut you down. How do you get around that? Well, there's a, a whole bunch of ways to do that. But the most important thing is when you're in a relationship, either a business relationship or a personal relationship, you actually have open and honest discussions about what that means. Mm. And there's an exercise that we do. It's, for example, what, what, what does father mean? You know, have that conversation with your daughter. What is father? What, what, you know, just like people say peace and some people say love and other people say strength or security or whatever. I, what are the connotations, right? And it's fascinating because we have 8 billion people, and when we use words, we have 8 billion different connotations and interpretations. Mm -hmm. Words and come with baggage. Words come with baggage. Right. So it, so and they you can, can get always stale. Get, but here's the problem. Overuse. If we are living in a two-dimensional communication world with texting and emails, and we don't have face-to-face, -face, and we don't have these deep, powerful, revealing, vulnerable, transparent conversations, there are going to be a lot of misinterpretations. I bet every single person listening right now has had a text that they've either sent or received that has been misinterpreted that has caused problems. I had one yesterday. Tell us. <laughs> what happened? Oh, I, I was trying to be funny. I said, you know, uh, come or we'll argue in person. And then uh, she said, I, I don't have to go there. I can stay here and argue with my kids. So she thought I was being serious. I thought she was being serious. And we're both trying to be funny. And it just didn't work, didn't come across on text. can't believe I remember that. But I, I'm fascinated by words that are overused and they lose their like juice. Anti-Semitism. I had a meeting the other day with someone who was trying to make the case that the word anti-Semitism has lost its power. It's like it, he was trying to say it was kind of nebulous and, and things. So I said, well, what's another way to say anti-Semitism? And he said, ethnic racism would have more power. Ethnic racism. Now, talk to me about the, the phrase, you're a man of words, anti-Semitism. Well, but, has but, it but lost its juice? At, but let's, has it lost it? I, I, not to me. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm a Jewish guy, right? I mean, that's a deeply meaningful word. But ethnic, what is it? Ethnic racism. racism that has a very different connotation than anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's very different. Yeah. And because, I mean, you, you, but again, the point of my story about the UN is every word has so many different ways of being interpreted. For me, ethnic racism may or may not have anything to do with Jews, okay. whereas anti-Semitism is very focused on Jews. So anti-Semitism is part of ethnic racism, but ethnic racism and anti-Semitism don't communicate the same thing. So it depends on what you want to say. Right, right, right. Have you dealt in situations in relationships when words can... Words can heal, words can destroy. Do you have examples of words that can really, really destroy, really hurt relationships? Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a caveat on that. I mean, of course there are words that, you know, I'm not going to even talk about, right, that are cultural taboos. I'm, I'm talking innocent-sounding words in everyday conversations. How dare you? You should be ashamed. But, I but don't here's, know. But, but here's the thing. Let's take the, the how dare you. And one of the things that I teach that's one of the most important things that I teach, which I learned from Tony Robbins and I've experienced with thousands and thousands of clients, 
word that we have three ways that we communicate. And as important as words are, they have to be taken in an overall context, a holistic ecology, as it were, and fuller context. So there's words, and we communicate with voice tone and body language, right? So if I say, what was the, the, the phrase that you just said? How dare you? Right. So if I say, how dare you? If I say, how dare you? Or if I say, oh, how dare you? Okay. Right? Is there a different experience Huge. that you have? Huge, right? Right. One is like playful, and the other is you're thinking I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull a knife out of my back pocket. Right. right. So what we've learned is that, and there was a study back in 1968, very controversial, but I believe clinically it actually is accurate, uh, that words are only 7% of the overall impact of your communication with another person or a group of people. Voice tone is 38%. And I talk about this in my TED Talk a lot. And then body language is 55%. So if I say, how dare you, and I'm leaning back and my arms are folded or I have a big smile on my face, my 55% body language is going to override that 7% oh, that it's might like, be hostile. It's like shut up when they're young kids. Shut up, right? Yeah. A completely different meaning. I'm actually fascinated by a recent phenomenon on words that shut down conversations. And we're seeing more and more of that. Like right? which ones? Like, uh, you're racist. Right? As soon as you accuse somebody of being a racist, then there, there, there's no more conversation. You're accusing someone or uh, it would be hard by the way. It would be hard, by the way, to say you're racist with a voice tone or body language that softens that. Exactly. Because that's such a powerful so indictment. So powerful. And, and, and I, by the way, a majority right. of Americans believe that that guy whose name we're not going to mention in the White House is racist. A majority right. of Americans. And within conversations, I think this is one of the things that's accentuated the polarization in the country is these words that shut down conversations. It could be white privilege, could be this is microaggression, it could be a racist, it's uh, unacceptable. There are words you see it a lot in college campuses. What's inherent behind these words is a lack of desire to have a conversation or a debate. There's no curiosity. I'm done with you. It's not just that I disagree with you, it's that I reject you. Are you sensing some of that, Richard, from either side? I feel it you know. in my own body. I mean, as we talked about before the podcast, I mean, the, the degree of human polarization that's happening in this country, I think very much promoted by Donald Trump and the way he communicates. I think it's, it's, a, it's a human crisis for us as a country. And the truth is, I mean... And words are the, playing a role. Absolutely they are. I mean, you can disagree, the great quote, you can disagree without being disagreeable, right? But when you lob a Molotov cocktail like you're a racist, that it's very hard to continue a conversation or, with or, that. or even if it's not personal, it can just be said, well, that's racism, you know, when you said, or even, well, you know, that's anti-Semitism. Suggest... These are conversation stoppers. Right. So there are a couple of ways to soften that where you can potentially continue the conversation. You know, in some contexts, what you just said, David, might be considered racism or one might imagine that that is a racist view. I remember what but, was, uh, but still, yeah. the word is so highly charged, and, and it's even difficult when, to even, move forward. Correct. And even words that are not... I remember I was at a Shabbat table once and I said something and there was a professor that said, oh, that's so Jew-centric. And I'm thinking, what do I do with that? <laughs> I, I was, she was labeling a point that I was making 
but there was no point being made in return. There was no discussion of the substance. And uh, I remember another time with uh, another professor. Jew-centric. Who, I've never heard that before. Though. Jew-centric. And then I remember another professor, and she sort of quoted this French philosopher, and that is so long gone. That is so – it's like labeling a comment. And the minute you label something, you're stopping a conversation. So l- let me tell sense? you something that I did um, – I had a radio show uh, for three years, national, two hours a day live radio show. And I had uh, – it was right after Obama was elected or a year or so after. And there was a guy who came on and said, uh, Barack Obama is a a communist and he's a this and he's a that. And I said – so my first reaction was, you know, this guy is full of crap. You know, let's dump him. And I said – then I turned into an anthropologist. And that's what I like to do. When I hear somebody who says something that I really think comes out of another universe, instead of being angry, I become curious. Oh, and, man, you're a man after my own heart. And I go, okay. I said, you know what, John? I, I have actually never heard that before. And I am fascinated to understand why you just said that. So I'd love for you to educate me. Did you me. mean that? I did. Which, okay. I actually right. You're one did. of the first... It, no, I, I'm You're fascinated. Like, yeah, it, I, I have used that technique. Whenever I'm in a, in a bad situation, I could be in a position where I'm, like, I'm really bored by a speaker. I can be in a synagogue where I just really don't like the whole thing, right? Instead of putting my emotions in play, I just put on a journalistic hat. And I'm saying, well, let me try to figure this thing out. I'm curious now. Like, where does this come from? I'll give and you another example. almost I, a coping mechanism, isn't it? I, I've been working with the Parkland students and Parkland parents, and I'm very involved in the gun, common sense gun legislation movement and uh, working with some of the parents who have lost children from gun violence. And I was down in Dallas, uh, the NRA convention recently, and talking to a guy, a very educated guy, and he said, listen, if they, if, they, if they take away our assault weapons, we're going out into the streets and we're going to create a revolution. And that fascinated you. Instead of spitting on him, right? Instead of just saying, this guy's horrible, I'm going to, right? What did you do? Well, my first visceral reaction was, wow. Wow. <laughs> Why, I can't freaking believe this guy who is like very educated actually said that. And I was horrified. But it was like, I have a opportunity here to speak to someone who actually believes that. And he's not the only one in the country. Mm -hmm. I can do market research. I can learn more about my country. I can learn more about humanity. I can learn more about psychology. I can Mm -hmm. be an anthropologist. So I said, wow, wow, that's fascinating. Now, also was what I was experiencing is that is repulsive. But I said, that's fascinating. Can you tell me more about that? Tell me why that's I've Wow. And so often, Richard, And he did, we and it was fascinating. It was. And so often, we can't get past the repulsion. And I think this is a lot of what's happening in America today. We're stuck in the repulsion. So we, whether it's from the right or left or from any side, we make a judgment about a whole group, and we've decided that they repulse us, and we're done. Right. So we lose the curiosity, and I, it happens to me. If I, you know, it happens. Here's, here's my, my religious view. So I'm actually a pantheist. Do you know what a pantheist is? Einstein supposedly was a pantheist. Because that's well. going to be my next subject on your book, <laughs> your book on Einstein. I'm really fascinated by E equals MC squared exactly. and the new definition of God. So I'm a pantheist. So what pantheists believe is that everything is God. This 
bottle of tea is God in the form of glass and water and tea. Attention all my Orthodox uh, listeners, you can go get a glass of water. No, no, I want them to be anthropologists now and said, wow, okay, this guy who I thought made sense uh, for a few moments. Now I'm curious about Richard Green. No, listen, uh, here's my belief. If you go all the way back, so I... So I love being Jewish. I love the tradition. I love the community. I think the Torah is an incredible contribution to the world, okay? And I also try to balance that with an appreciation of science. And I think it's a challenging thing. But I think science actually is a deeply spiritual pursuit. So here's my belief. 13.8 billion years ago, and I know some people don't agree, there was this thing called the Big Bang, right? Most scientists say that that there was nothing, there was just God, and then, boom, 13.8 billion years ago, there was this flash of light. It was called a singularity. And my interpretation of that is God took all of his energy or some of his energy and created this flash of light, that the light itself was not only from God, it was of God. It Mm -hmm. was God, right? Because there's only God, according to the pantheistic view. So that light then, over millions and billions of years, condenses and slows down in frequency and becomes stars and planets and moons and all of the other things in the universe. We are literally, this is 100% true, we are stardust. Did you know that? You know, Einstein says that in that book I mentioned by Naomi Levy. Well, it's it's 100% factually true. A star reaches the end of its life after billions of years. It then explodes. All of the elements in the star then after millions of years with gravity and everything come together and form other stars and planets. So literally every single element that makes up your body sitting here right now in the studio came from an exploded star. Mm -hmm. That's a scientific fact. But I believe that exploded star was an aspect of God, mm. and that you, therefore, every single element in your body is an aspect of God, just like this table, just like your daughter, just like my cell phone. So um, anyway, so I wrote a, so I think that the A definition of God is the sum total of all of the energy in the universe. Albert Einstein in 1906 came up with the most famous scientific formula in the history of science, E equals MC squared. The amount of energy in anything right, this, this gram of, of bread that you have in front of you, is equal to the amount of mass, the matter that you have, times C squared, right, mm-hmm. times the speed of light squared. It's a mm-hmm. very, very big number. And what I learned, I became fascinated by this because I wrote about a chapter on Albert Einstein in my book, Words That Shook the World. He gave an amazing speech in 1945. He goes, the war is won, but the peace is not. And he was talking about Israel. Mm. And I fell in love even more deeply with Einstein, and I became fascinated, and I had this epiphany that E equals MC squared is the new definition of God. So I spent like a year researching nuclear physics, right, to try to understand it. Did you know that the atomic bomb that detonated in Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, do you know how much matter was exploded, as it were, that turned from matter into energy uh, to create a that? Probably tiny amount, right? Yeah, about one gram. Yeah, amazing. So your body is maybe 75,000 grams. That mm-hmm. means you have 75,000 yes. nuclear bombs mm-hmm. worth of what I would call God force energy in your physical body. And that connects, you know, in a way, Richard, to the power of one word. So there's wow, thousands okay. and thousands of words, and you just take one one gram of that one word can 
changed so many things. Look at you. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Every, but, the, the, but let me go back to this thing about our being divided. So if, in fact, and, and, and looking past the one word that's going to explode the relationship, mm -hmm. right, in a family relationship or anything, if you go back to that understanding that we are all one. Mm. So I think the Shema is the most, obviously, I agree, it's the most f f sacred prayer. When my father passed away, I literally said the Shema over his body, right, before mm. he was taken uh, out of the house, you know. And I happen to believe that it means not just that there is one God, right, one external God. I believe that God is one. Like Shema Israel Adonai Elohim Adonai Had, we are all one, and we are all God. And let me just finish this. If you look at the Ohm symbol, so I was I wrote up this children's book, E equals M C squared, and the new definition of God. I'm giving a speech in Brussels, Belgium, sitting down having lunch with uh, somebody who was there, the wife of one of the the students, and I was telling her about the book, and she says, "Of course." Of course, E equals MC squared is the new definition, is a definition of God. I said, what do you mean, of course? I'm the only one in the universe that knows this. And goes, not really. Somebody beat you to the punch by like 5,000 years. I said, what do you mean? She goes, take out your phone, pull up the OM symbol. You know OM, mm -hmm. right? The Sanskrit symbol OM. Mm -hmm. If you look at it, and I talk about this in my TED talk, it's E equals MC squared, which pretty trippy. Anyway, the way to get beyond the power of one word or a group of words polarizing us, whether they're coming from Donald Trump or your wife or your husband, is to realize We're that we, one. we are all one. You know, I and read we this. Are, I, I would say further, but I don't think it's necessary. We are all aspects of that one which we can call God, which is a quantity of energy which is so enormous. I mean, you have 75,000 atomic bombs worth of energy just in your physical body. And you know I mean, what? That's awe-inspiring. I read this fascinating piece recently. Right. On the difference between dignity and respect. And sometimes we confuse the two, right? Respect is a function of what you do. So I'm going to lose respect for you if I disagree with what you do. But dignity is not a function of what you do. Dignity is a function of who you are. The mere fact that you exist makes you deserve a certain level of dignity. Because you're God, and so am I. Correct. And that's what and namaste, right? If you go traveling around India and places near there and you hold up your hand in namaste, that means I bow down to the God in you, which I see and acknowledge as a reflection of the God in me. Right. And how funny you said respect. Right. right. We're now so, doing this a day after Aretha Franklin passed. Oh, amazing. R-A-S-P-E-C-T. So, and we confuse the two so easily. So in a way, respect needs to be earned, but dignity at its core is inherent. Is inherent. Does need to be earned. So a lot of times we diminish somebody's dignity because of something they did, but the dignity is already inherent in every person. And what would the world be like is if you're if you're walking down the street and you see a homeless person or you see someone who maybe scares you or because they're kind of strange or violent or there's a Muslim guy or a Jewish guy connected, right? And we're able to transcend that and get to that place of seeing the sameness, the inherent God-filled, God-inspired dignity that we all share. That would be a beautiful place. And hopefully we can move towards that place. We're speaking of the power of words. 
dignity is a perfect example. I think we're now demonstrating just the power of words, just distinguishing between respect and dignity. It's just a good, good example. I don't want to finish this podcast. And we could, we could talk about words for a million years. <laughs> we, might, we might do it again because I know you travel so a lot. Beautiful. I don't want to finish this podcast before because I know your TED Talk got millions of views. And I just would love to hear you talk about it. It's titled The Seven Secrets of the Greatest Speakers in History. Can you like share a couple of those secrets? Tell me. Which well, I have been. I have been. I'll run through them real quick. Please. But to go, yeah, it, I, I, it's almost yeah. 2 million views, which is Why so... Why do you think it resonated? Somebody told me that what makes TED Talks get a lot of views is they have to be useful and entertaining, right? And Or he said awesome, but I'm not going to say my TED Talk is awesome, but it's, I'm trying to be humble here. But I think it's useful, right? So I've spent 30 years trying to redefine the greatest fear that human beings have, which is standing up and sharing your message, your wisdom, your mission with, with people. Because you gave us three before. Right. So number, right. secret so number one, seven. secret number one is words, right? The secret of words, which is to tell stories, right? Number two is voice tone. You want to have variation in your voice tone. Otherwise, you become mo you're monotone and you are hypnotizing your audience into falling asleep or looking at their cell phones. I hope every bar mitzvah speech maker listens to this because they all have the same tone. They go up and down, up and down. Yeah, the whole down. sing song thing, right? <laughs> is that what it's then, called, sing song? Which, which then gets to secret number five, which I'll tell you. So secret uh, number three is body language, certain things that you do, like standing up straight and tall and looking in people's eyes, not looking over their heads or imagining them being naked. Secret number four is you have to have a, what I call a lasered compelling message. I have a dream. The only thing to fear is fear itself. You know, ask not what your country can do for you. You have to have some provocative theme. That's and, your And that number one message. is important. You have one message. I think this is a mistake that's so easily made when you just jumble up and have a lot of messages. Most right? of my business and political clients, they just have this, what I call the spaghetti theory of communication. They just throw, throw it out, out, throw out and hope that the spaghetti noodles somehow stick on the wall as opposed to, no, it's your job to tell me exactly what you want me to be thinking, feeling, and doing when I walk out of the room. And that means you have to do the work to come up with what is your headline, your laser compelling message. Number five is what I call the communication effectiveness continuum. So what's bad, which used to be considered good, is to have a performance at the audience. If you think of public speaking as a performance, you're going to have performance anxiety and you're not going to be authentic. You're going to be an actor. That to me is not effective. Then in the middle of that continuum is a presentation to the audience. That's where most business speakers are. But where you get the Ronald Reagans and the Martin Luther Kings and Bill Clinton, who's an incredible speaker, John F. Kennedy, is they're having a conversation with. Mm -hmm. You're making a circuit or a circle with you and every person in the audience. Where did you put Obama on that continuum? Uh, when Obama was doing his campaign speaking, he was conversation with. When he then was president, he had to be more thoughtful and more intellectual, mm -hmm. more cerebral. He would oftentimes be more presentational and more wonky and less emotional. But uh, Barack Obama, extraordinary speaker. Oh, no, he is. And uh, teleprompter, do you recommend that? Listen, my, that for me, what I want all my clients to do is to have an outline with just bullet points and be able to 
speak from your heart and tell mm -hmm. lots of stories and not be the gotcha. a prisoner to this linear data. But if you have to do a teleprompter, you have to read a speech, there are ways to do it to make it more conversational. I gotcha. And that's, okay. that's something that I, that I work with clients a lot. Then number six, secret number six, is the essence of this thing that I learned years ago from Tony Robbins called neuro-linguistic programming. It's the four languages of human communication, which is the visual language, Robin Williams, high energy, big picture, very inspiring, very exciting. Then the auditory language, which is how articulate are you? Do you sound good? Ronald Reagan, like this incredible, easy, articulate way of communicating a great sounding voice. The auditory digital is the third language. You got to have substance. There's got to be some there there. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to come across as this, this superficial salesperson. Right, mm -hmm. so they have to have some data. That's the Albert Einstein part of the brain, mm -hmm. and then the the what I would say Morgan Freeman, James Earl Jones, also Bill Clinton was so good at this. You have to be emotional. You have to. It's mm -hmm. the what we call kinesthetic part of your brain: tasting, touching, smelling, and Do that's feel, all part of number six. That's. Yeah, that's all part of it. the four languages. Right. Great communicators can speak all four of those languages. Mm -hmm. Not great communicators generally speak two, occasionally three, but the average in, in the entire country by far is to about one half of one percent of people can speak all four. That's the Martin Luther King, Oprah Winfrey, all a of that. And you want to have those four happening in the same speech. Because there are going to be people sitting in the audience who are primarily visual, some who are primarily auditory, some primarily auditory digital, and a lot of people are kinesthetic. So Donald Trump was more kinesthetic. He got people to be more emotionally engaged. Hillary, despite the fact that she's been with Bill Clinton for a long time, didn't have that touchy-feely. You didn't want to go up and hug her. That's and interesting. You weren't emotionally you know, Richard, engaged. Because Trump got the kind of people that responded to that part of him. Absolutely. Yeah, directed and that. I wrote a piece uh, in the Huffington Post talking about what an incredible communicator Donald Trump was. I wrote it at the beginning of the primary season, I believe in September of 2015. Mm. I said, Donald Trump is likely to win the Republican primary and very possibly also the White House. Everyone I knew thought I was completely out of my, my mind. But uh, he is an unbelievably effective communicator. Wow. And then secret number seven, the most important one, all you need is this one, actually. You can forget everything else I just uh, said. I think, I don't know, I haven't seen the TED Talk yet. Love? I, I, I heard close. all you need. I'm a big Beatles fan. All you need <laughs> is love. No, love is a pretty powerful emotion. I think I think. It's God, funny how love is one of those few words that somehow it just never loses its juice. No, I, I think, listen, I think everything in the word. universe, we talk about this, everything is light. Mm -hmm. Right? Light is love, right? And love and light are God. So God, love, light. Those are the things I think that are the essence of the I can never get are. enough of the word love. So tell me number seven. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, it's true. I love the word. Well, it's, yeah. it, it is a word. sacred word. And there are yeah. some people believe that is what the universe is. The universe is 100% love and that there is no such thing as hate or anything but love. You're just the absence of it. For example, black is not a color. Mm -hmm. Black is what? It's the absence of light, light, right? And everything is love. Everything is light. And anything like hate and fear and all of that is simply the, the absence, absence of, of that which is the, the essence of everything. I'm which glad is light we're doing this on a Friday because it gets us into that Shabbat good mood of Shalom, everyone. Shabbat. Secret yeah. number seven is authentic passion. Mm -hmm. 
right? Again, you have to be authentic and you have to be passionate about what you're speaking about. And the, uh, the, the ideal person on this, the greatest speaker I think who's ever lived that certainly I've ever seen is Dr. Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be inspired, watch his I Have a Dream speech. Oh, we if you want to be inspired, watch times. his I've been to the mountaintop and yeah. I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I can't get enough of that speech. No, I, I, I play it all over the it. world and I have business people and ties in different countries. They've never seen the speech before. And there's total silence after that and tears in their eyes. That's how powerful authentic passion can be. And Dr. King... Oh my God, what a master. We drove up to, uh, I don't know, we went skiing. Like, it was like a four-hour drive with my kids, and we just played that speech the whole trip because it was Martin Luther King weekend. I can't get enough of it. By the way, little piece of trivia, uh, Richard. Right before he made that speech, there's a rabbi that spoke. His name is Oachim Prince. In Memphis, that last speech, the I've Been to the Mountaintop? No. The, or the I Have a Dream speech? The I Have a Dream speech okay. at the famous Washington Mall. Yeah. 250,000 people. Exactly. A Jewish rabbi, Joachim Prince, obviously can't compare it to the one that came after him, but it's worth worth listening to. And I played I for my kids too. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm going to have to find that. That's awesome. Anyways, on that note, Richard, thank you for sharing your passion, your authenticity, and, and your words with us. David, this has been a pleasure. And I love your... I love that there's someone who can wonk out on on words and the the essence of the differences in words. And you are an anthropologist. You're a lover of life and language, and I very much appreciate being well, with you. Thank you. And I've been told I have to say this line. If you like the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom.